Caring is the most important part about coaching. The technical stuff is easy to learn, but being able to care about your clients and actually knowing every single one of them, knowing their children's names, what their birthdays are, etc., that's what separates most coaches from those out there. I've seen the most educated and most technical coaches out there not have any bedside manner or person-to-person skills, and they end up not being successful. Who wants to train with someone who isn't fun to be around and caring? That being said, I am saying all of this assuming you continue to hone your craft and educate yourself in all things training. Welcome to Glorious Professionals, episode 28, brought to you by GoRuck Media. I'm Jason, here with Rich, and our guest today is Dave Castro, the director of the CrossFit Games, former Navy SEAL and BUDS instructor, and author of Constructing the CrossFit Games. Dave, thanks for coming on. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So I want to kind of build up to your decision to serve your country, join the Navy, but really it's just how did you grow up? Who or what were your, your earliest influences? I grew up on the ranch in uh, Romans, California, our 65-acre um, ranch that's the home of the first three CrossFit Games. And, and actually, I, I was born in San Jose, and we moved to this property when I was in the second grade. Growing up on the ranch, I had a lot of freedom and a lot of room to roam. And so being in the hills and being outside w- was part of my life. And you know, I was into GI Joe and those type of toys at the time. So, special forces type characters, that sort of thing was was influential uh, in my younger years. Then, as I grew out of that phase, and you know, into middle school and high school, I was really involved in sports and martial arts. And um, I think some of the 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 things I learned in in pursuing martial arts and and pursuing high school athletics kind of um, set me down this path of, of challenging myself and wanting to, to know um, how far I could push myself and how far I could go. I still hadn't connected the dots yet, though. At, at this point, I was just, you know, processing all of these things and, and wondering where I could go with this. You know, so as a, as a young child roaming the hills, shooting guns, playing with G.I. Joes, then um, as a middle school, high school athlete, not really fulfilling my athletic potential. I wasn't a high school football star. I played on the football team, but I wasn't a star. And I think that kind of, I wasn't even a starting athlete. <laughs> so like I was, I was wondering like, man, am I just not physically capable of, of taking myself to this next level? Because in, in, in high school athletics, which I was really passionate about, I wasn't excelling. I tried out for the basketball team. I think my sophomore, junior year, I was really into basketball. I still am. And I didn't get picked. And that was like really another like, damn, there, there's just these moments where I'm like questioning myself and questioning my my worth basically as a child. So so all of this stuff was lingering. I loved sports. So I loved being on the football team. I was on the football team throughout high school. Um, I loved the discipline that came with it. I loved the structure that came with it. And then after high school, uh, I was slated to go to, I was accepted to Cal State University, Monterey Bay which was a newer school in Monterey, California, a new uh, school in the California state system. And my brother didn't go to college. My parents didn't go to college. So for, um, for them, it was really important that I went to college. And I, I kind of wanted to. That was the natural path, I think, or I believed at the time. Well, the summer between high school and, and going to college, I went to the movies with, uh, with my girlfriend at the time, and I saw The Rock. 
And The Rock was this Sean Connery and Nicolas Cage action film. I think Michael Bay directed it. It was in filmed in San Francisco and these Marines go rogue and essentially take over Alcatraz and hold all these Americans hostage and demand money for some of their fallen uh, teammates' families. Well, they the FBI comes in and decides they have to rescue, save the island, and they decide to call in the best special forces or the, the most elite unit. And this team comes in and they get out of the helicopters and the images are all slow and they're all in black and it's the Navy SEALs. And I'm like, when I was watching the movie, I'm like, wow, these guys look fucking cool. And I'd heard about Navy SEALs, you know, when I was younger, and but I didn't really ever get into it. Then, uh, so they brief how they're going to do their mission. Then they come in through these underwater vehicles. And I was like, man, this is so cool. These guys are really intense. And, and this is this is amazing. Well, the funny part about all of this is they end up coming out of the uh, sewer and the Marines kill them all. Well, that didn't matter. Um, yeah. So the, but the, the, the Lieutenant, I mean, he was, it was a very moral thing. He was ordered to drop his weapons. Cause you know, all, all of this back and forth. And he was like, I'm not going to issue that order yeah. because I, I'm going to defend against, against enemies, foreign and domestic. Right. Absolutely. And so it painted them out to be kind of this very moral soldiers or very moral seals. Sorry. Um, Absolutely. but, but yeah, it cost them their, it cost them their lives. <laughs> it was really powerful. It was a powerful scene, a great scene. So I left the movie and this is another thing that I've always done my entire life. Whenever I'm into something, I really research and study and, and, uh, try to take in all the content I can on the particular subject. I still do that to this day. So I started going to uh, the bookstore and buying all the books I could find on Navy seals Dick Marcinko's Rogue, Rogue Warrior, and I read all of Marcinko's books. There was a few other people at the time, not as many now, but at the time who had wrote books on being SEALs. I picked those up, read those, started watching all the movies or, or any um, documentary that was, a, that was available. And the reoccurring theme through all of this was they have the hardest training in the military. And, you know, I, I won't even say like after having done this for so long, I won't even say I would say that because you know what? Every special forces in every group has really difficult and hard training. And so like, yeah, it was very hard, but I believe there's other very difficult ones too. I, so that's just a side uh, tangent. But so I read that and started seeing that over and over that it was viewed as the hardest training. And I wondered if I could do it. So that seed was planted in my head. And I said, I wonder if I can do this. I wonder if I have what it takes. And if you, you know, you heard about my high school experience where I hadn't excelled. And so for me, this was like, I've got to try this just to see if I can, if I can do it, if I can prove to myself that I do have what it Get, get some redemption or yeah, something. Exactly. Um, <laughs> and so I told my parents I wanted to do this and they said, no, you, you got to do high school or college. You got to follow through with that plan and stay, stay true to your commitment. Well, I said, okay. And then I started going to school and I quickly realized even at this young age, I thought, you know, if I finish school in four years, things are going to be so different. You know, I might end up getting married. I might decide I want to go in a different direction. And then if that happens five years after that, six years after that, when I'm in my 30s or late 20s, I might find myself saying, remember when I wanted to be a Navy SEAL? I wonder what would have happened if I would have tried that. Or I could have found myself saying, I wish I would have tried that. So I told myself, if I don't do this now, I might not ever do it. And so therefore, I dropped out of college and I told my parents against their will, 
I'm enlisting in the Navy and I'm going to, I'm going to try to do this. So Dave, r- real quick, like what sort of mentors di- did you have? I mean, who were you talking to at this time? Cause that's, I, I did something sort of similar. I did, uh, you know, after nine 11, I decided I, that's what I wanted to do. And I, I talked to a couple people, not mom. She was not happy with this decision. Right. And I needed some people to talk to. I mean, especially in your, your younger years, you know, I mean, what was that? What was that process like? Well, two things on that. One, you doing it after 9-11, I think is way more impressive than when I did it because I did it in 98. So I've always, everyone who enlisted after 9-11 for those first four or five years into communities like we were, I, I commend you and I commend them because you enlisted knowing you were going into uh, or, or joined knowing you were going into to harm's way. When I did it, nothing was going on. I still think I would have had it been a few years later, but I just wanted to say that it's a, I view, I view the post 9-11 enlistments as like a, a, an even braver act, but to back up, well, I don't, you know what? I think it was self-driven and through the, the materials I was studying, I don't, I didn't have anyone. And my father provided me support, but we weren't like super close in that way. Um, he had a friend who um, earlier in, in my younger years, especially in athletics, was kind of a mentor. His name was Jeff, but um, he wasn't around at this phase. You know, I really wish there were programs like there are now with like these mentor programs where they link you up with a SEAL or they link you up with someone to talk to. I, don't, I didn't have any of that. And I, I think it, um, I've always been kind of to myself anyways. And even in my later stages in life and now how I do things, I kind of keep things close. And I think that was kind of the foundation to it because I, ha- I felt like I had to do this on my own. And I, I really don't think I had, you know, the recruiter didn't count. That doesn't count. There was no one that I can think of that I was really talking to about this in, in, in depth or uh, it was all a solo quest really. It's almost like it, it wasn't quite as much, hey, I want to serve my country right now. And, and like, it sounds like it was more, here's this huge challenge that's in front of me. And I want to go, I want to go do that. It was 100%. It had, you know, it's funny. It wasn't even about serving my country, to be honest with you. It was just about this challenge. It was solely about, I want to try to become a Navy SEAL to see if I have what it takes to see if I can do that. It was a hundred percent about the challenge. I, I wasn't super like, um, I wasn't like I'm patriotic and I want to serve my country. I wasn't like, and I am very patriotic, but I wasn't like um, uh, the military is going to provide me guidance and structure in life. No, it was a single singularly focused on that goal of trying to be a SEAL. And that's, it's interesting because there's so many other things throughout my life years after that, that have kind of been the same way. I just singularly focus on an item and I go after it. And I go after it hard. So I decided to do it and I went for it. Did it deliver? Did it deliver? I mean, I know you started out of rigor and you had to make your way and stuff, but did it, did it deliver what you had, what you had hoped? Let me, let me even back up a second. So when I did decide I wanted to do it, I started training like a nut and I started running a lot. There was this thing called the seal PT, the seal warning order. And it was a, it was a training protocol with, um, progressive building up on running, uh, physical fitness and swimming or PT, you know, push-ups, sit-ups and pull-ups and a swimming program. And so I started following this program to train for it. And as interestingly, I didn't grow up swimming. I knew how to swim, but so I had to, I had to go to YMCA's or I had to go to local pools actually in Monterey and, uh, 
I had this swimming, swimming for me always became, it was always the tough part for me in the training because I wasn't a natural swimmer. Through training for it, I found out I was really good at running. And to this day, I'm still pretty decent at running. And actually, I look back and wish I would have ran in high school. I wish I would have done cross country in high school because I probably would have been pretty good. But um, so I started training really hard for it, enlisted, shipped off to boot camp. Boot camp was a huge um, eye opener. I mean, just being exposed to, you know, I lived, I grew up on the West Coast in California. And one of my big, one of my big memories from it is like, what is this thing called grits? Like when, when we're going through the child line, they had something called grits and I'd never heard of grits in my life. And I'm like, is this like malto meal or oatmeal or what is this? And just meeting new people <laughs> and seeing new cultures, like that was all like an eye opener to me. And from boot camp, eight weeks of boot camp in February in Great Lakes, it was snowing and miserable. I went to Pensacola, Florida for uh, a school, which a school is like an MOS. It's vocation school where you learn a skill if you if you don't make it through buds, you have something to go back to the Navy with. And um, that for me was a parachute rigger. And interestingly, at that school, the skills I learned there, I learned how to sew. To this day, I still do. So I'm, I'm still passionate about sewing. I still like making things. Now I'm more into leather craft than I am necessarily um, nylon gear or goods like you do. But I'm really, I, I have a complete sewing setup. I have multiple, I have three or four machines and so sewing stuck with me from that. And then from there, I went to Buds. And um, thankfully, I was able to make it through Buds in one push, which is actually kind of uh, rare. I didn't get rolled for injuries, and I didn't get rolled for uh, for any performance issues. And I was able to make it through uh, in one push. So how well prepared were you for Buds? Was it the mental? Was it the physical? I mean, wh- like, wh- where, what's your, what's your headspace at, at that time? Well, it's all mental. As, as people who've done any of these programs know, physical is very important. I was prepared as physically as I could be. Interestingly, when you go to boot camp, you get out of shape. Um, then when I went to A school, I was able to start getting back in shape. But even once you get the buds, like they ramp everything up too. You just don't start with these massive runs and massive swims. Like they, they kind of build you up. Then they, they try to break you down, of course. But the big, the big thing there is the test is all mental. It's all about testing your ability to, to, to stay and not quit and to keep pushing through. And for me, the, one of the biggest challenges, and I tell people who, who um, are going or ask me about it, is like, so Hell Week, I think, then was the fourth or fifth week. And Hell Week's a big week where you're up all week and, and they push you through all these challenges. Well, when you finish Hell Week, you quickly realize you're not like through and they're not your buddies and it's still really hard and it's still complete. It's a nightmare and they're not, um, they're pushing you and challenging you and still putting you through all the bullshit. Cause for some reason I'm, I kind of thought and was wishful that like once you finish hell week, you kind of like made it, but that wasn't the case at all. And then at that point, once you realize that's not the case at all, you wake up and you go this week or this day was really hard. And yet I still have five months of this. I still have four months of this, four or five months of this. Even when you're in third phase and you wake up and you go, I still have two months of this. That is so daunting and so challenging right here. The notion that you still have months of this abuse in front of you, 
I think back, like when I look back on that period, I, if I thought if I was in my 30s when I went through, which actually my roommate, he was an ex-Special Force, uh, ex-Marine uh, Force Recon guy who was, I think, 33 when we went through and I was 19. Um, I thought if I was in my 30s, I could have never put up with that. But because I was so focused on the the end state, on making it through, I feel like I was able to, to just set my sights on finishing it. And, and what I did mentally I stopped thinking about, I have four or five more months of this. And I started thinking about all I need to do is to survive to the next meal. And so I took it meal to meal. Cause so in buds, like we're not like ranger school in buds, we eat really well and they feed us a lot. And so you'd wake up in the morning and I was like, all I need to do is make it to breakfast. And then breakfast is kind of a reset. You get hammered in between breakfast. And then I thought, all I need to do is make it to lunch. And I just repeated that day after day and just set my next goal is just making it to the next meal. And uh, for me, that was how I was able to process and comprehend the, the torture and the rigor and the duration. And, and really the thing that the moments when you think about quitting in buds is entirely in the water. And it's when they, they do what's called surf torture and they lay you out in the surf zone and you're cold and you're wet and you're sandy and you're like cold to your like to your bone, like your bones are cold. It's just so miserable. And you just sit there and that's sort of the same sort of thing where like, like I have 30 more minutes of this or I have an hour of this and I'm already cold within a couple minutes. And that's where people quit the most is in the surf torture. Well, it, they keep testing your commitment over and over and over. And the, the mental part, you know, cause w w we get this as well, right? Cause you watch all the carnage on discovery channel or whatever. And it's, you know, all of a sudden they fast forward and someone quits or whatever, but that person has been thinking about this for a long time. Yeah. Like once it gets inside your head, the cancer, the quit cancer, it just starts to spread. Yeah. Right. And if you have more commitment, if you just refuse to to fail, like really refuse to fail, and, and you're willing to do the things that it takes, then you have a lot greater chance of passing. But but ultimately, it's it's just, you know, you say you were focused, but there's there's so much commitment as well that goes into it. Two things on that. Um, interestingly, once I made it to the SEAL teams and I did the job for, I was a SEAL for 12 years, there was multiple times in training, especially in training, but also in some missions, where I look back and I realize exactly why we did what we did. I, I realized we needed to go through that and we needed to do that to do the job we did. It all made sense to me, but it all made sense years later. And, and like those programs and the reason they do those things is so necessary. So I really respect the protocol, the pipeline and the program to get to, because there's moments later where you do have to shut off or you do have to use those skills you use there mentally to get through other tough things. The second thing I want to say on that, I've met a lot of SEALs and I didn't realize this until uh, I was at the SEAL teams who had been to BUDS twice. And so like, I hold nothing against some people like are like, I hold nothing against the guy who quit and then went back and then made it through. It's actually really uh, impressive and commendable. And that's not, that's not a rarity. There's actually more guys than you would think who have washed out, I won't say quit, some quit or and or washed out and then came back later and went, went through the process again. And I almost feel like those guys, like that takes a lot of effort because you're basically, know, you know what you're coming back to. You know, I didn't know what I was getting into, but if I would have quit and then two years later come back, I would have known exactly what I'm getting into and how painful it was going to be. 
All right. So you get onto the, to the teams and, and what's sort of the role of fitness on the teams? Cause, cause it doesn't, it's not like buds forever. You know, it's, there's a lot more big boy rules. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, and we're building towards you and I started doing CrossFit around the same time, like 2000, I started 2006 from two, two SF dive instructors who came back from, from a rotation in Afghanistan and started doing CrossFit and they, they brought it to phase three, our MOS phase. And it was just pull-ups and sandbags and rucks in a, in a dirt field outside Fort Bragg. And it was like, this is going to be awesome, man. We're going to do CrossFit and lots of it. Cause it's going to, it's going to, it's going to give you results. You need the results that this will deliver. Right. Yeah. And so I feel like our, our communities really latched on to this type of training, but what was it like when you first got onto the teams in 1998? I mean, what was the training like then? Uh, here's what's neat is I got I got to the teams or this community and this community when this was not the norm. And what I've I started seeing it towards when, once I started to get out, you, you know, now especially you hear guys talking about, oh, this is always the way we've trained or this is always the way we've done things, not CrossFit, but functional movements or stuff like this. And And that's not the truth at all. When I came in in 98, um, so fitness has been entirely a focus of the SEAL teams, obviously, that, that's what they're kind of known for. And when I got to SEAL Team 4, that was my first SEAL team, there was a couple camps. You were either running and swimming a lot, you were like an endurance guy, and or you were just straight up into bodybuilding. And like, I, like there were a lot of big dudes who just benched and pumped a lot of weight and did a lot of curls. And then there was a lot of guys who were, were I'd say less, but there were guys who were just into the to the running aspect. And then both groups, sometimes, you know, pull-ups and push-ups still kind of were a thing, but um, it was big boy rules. Most people did train on their own. Uh, every Friday we would do a two mile ocean swim, which was horrific. Um, we would do it in Virginia beach and in the winter time it was freezing, but um, I didn't see a lot of functional movements. I didn't see a lot of deadlifts. I didn't see a lot of cleans. Um, I didn't, people weren't, weren't training like that really during that phase. It wasn't, I didn't find CrossFit till years later until 2005-ish, four or five, when Mark Twight, a rock climber who we were doing a climbing trip with, he's a world famous climber. And I asked him what he did for training and he told me he used CrossFit. And he started explaining CrossFit to me and talk, talking about the movements. And again, for me, that's uh, seven years in the teams that I still hadn't seen any of these movements, not like cleans and snatches. People weren't doing that stuff. So I started researching the program and studying the methodology CrossFit, but I didn't try it. I didn't dive into it yet again, because I kind of wanted to understand it pre just going into it. And the, the movements were so intimidating for me, someone who's never done some of that stuff. I didn't want to go for it and give it a, give it a try without knowing what I was doing. You probably also didn't want to show your ass in front of your teammates or something. I mean, it's, 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 yeah. you know, you, you get in that community, man. And it's like, you start bringing in, like Rich has talked about way back in the day when they started uh, bringing in yoga into the early days at, at, at the unit. And there was a, uh, what they, they started saying their girlfriends were doing it. So it's, the, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. Cause yoga wasn't super cool. Right. No, no way. Until we we found out that the yoga instructor that was there was wearing was wearing ankle and and wrist weights and she was just smoking our butts. <laughs> That's awesome. You know, so everyone's always looking looking for an edge, but you can't just go bringing in something that the den of wolves doesn't doesn't accept. So okay, let's go back real quick because Mark Twight, uh, I 
read a little bit about that. You know, you wanted to be, you wanted to better prepare for the mountains of Afghanistan. Yeah. But I want to go back real quick. Where were you on 9-11? What, what was that story for you? So 9-11, I was in Glacier National Park in Wyoming. And we were, I was at uh, SEAL Team 8 at the time. And we were training the BIA, Bureau of Indian Affairs. And it was a sniper trip. And we were working with these guys on tactics and, and long range shooting and some close quarter shooting. And um, we were staying, I think it was Glacier National Lodge. And uh, it, interestingly, when we first got there, uh, BIA is like the FBI, but for Indian reservations, the B Bureau of Indian Affairs, um, they kind of run just like the FBI. And we went to their headquarters in uh, the Blackfoot uh, Reservation. And we were walking through their uh, armory and checking out all their gear. And they had the FBI top 10 list. And I'll never forget this. I look at their, the list and I saw Osama bin Laden and I pointed out to one of the guys. I'm like, look, this guy's uh, bin Laden is one of the, the top 10. And we discussed it for a brief moment. I don't remember what we said. And we left. And we spent a few days training. Well, one morning, a few days later, I woke up and everybody was in the lobby of uh, the hotel. I think it was Glacier Park Hotel, whatever. And I walk into the lobby and everybody's staring at the screens. And I look on the TV and the, the Twin Towers are in smoke. And we were like, wow. And so we call all our members and we all came in here. And it's interesting because here we are active duty and there's a lot of civilians in the hotel too. They, I don't think they had any idea who we were. But um, so we watched this go on. And I just remember thinking, wow, everything's changed. I thought like this is going to change the course of direction for all of us. And at the time, we didn't even know it was like, you know, I said a few days later, I saw Bin Laden or a few days earlier, I saw Bin Laden on an FBI top 10 list. But at that moment, I didn't know it was him or didn't connect it. Well, there was nothing we could do at the time. We were so as part of SEAL Team 8. It's not like we were getting called out to go do anything. Uh, so we just continued on with the training. And we continued um, working with these guys and then we came home. So so our schedule at that point was all on a routine, on a normal um, structure. We get back. I end up deploying Puerto Rico and I'm watching all of this stuff. We're watching it all go on. And, and in the first few years of it, it was very much, you know, not everybody was involved. So just because you were a SEAL didn't mean you were going to um, you were going to go to Afghanistan and you were going to be involved. Same thing with if you were special forces at the time. So deployed to Puerto Rico, I'm watching all this go on and I knew I needed to get out there. And I knew there was only one way I was going to get out there. And this is like, so you talk about in the very beginning, you mentioned how we're both, uh, myself and Richard are very quiet people. We don't talk about a lot of this stuff. And so now I'm entering into the realm of stuff like um, I don't really feel comfortable talking about. And here's why I don't. Because um, I really took to heart the silent professional ethos that um, we came up with in the SEAL teams. That a lot of guys instilled in me and like, um, I don't want to say pounded, but really beat into me. And I was proud of, I was proud that we were doing something that I would never talk about publicly or I wouldn't write books about or like, I really took that to heart. So once I started getting involved with CrossFit, I didn't talk much about it. And actually, I told Greg Glassman and I told Tony Budding, Tony was our media director at the time, don't put my SEAL stuff forward. Because I was working for CrossFit from 2006 to 2010 and active duty at the same time. So for four years, I was full-time CrossFit and I was a BUDS instructor, active duty. And I told him, I don't want any of that stuff on the front. I don't want to lead with it. 
And, and interestingly, years later, here we are, uh, 2020, I still meet people who will come up to me and say, hey, I just found out you were a SEAL. That's really cool. So I'm really proud of the fact that I, made, I was able to establish myself in CrossFit and get to where I am, not by leaning on being a Navy. I'm not Dave Cash for the Navy SEAL. And I love that. And you see, I, I feel like there's so many guys out there that are public that are so-and-so the Navy SEAL. And, and that I was able to, to keep them separate has been very uh, something I'm very proud of. Now, to tie that all to what I was saying, I knew to get to the battleground, there was only one place I can go. And I had to try out for, for another level. And, um, and it was a goal of mine to do that. And, and here's the, re- the other reason why I don't want to speak much about that is because I'm still really closely connected to that area. And I still respect those those war fighters, and um, I'm not going to compromise that. So there was another level to go that I was going to try out for. I tried out for it, I made it, and um, and I was able to go to Afghanistan multiple times, multiple deployments. In the heat of it all, it was during that phase where I did meet Mark Twight, and we did talk about CrossFit, and he did um, he did plant the seed for me to start exploring it. Okay. So I completely understand all of that. I I have a lot of respect for that. I I think it's really cool. I I didn't know you were a SEAL for a really long time either. And I'm, you know, you can kind of Google lots of stuff and it's cool. The, The thing that I think would be interesting though, to talk about is just, you've done a lot of programming and been a very kind of public figure of CrossFit since, since the games really. Right. Yeah. And you know, describing what this mindset is, where you come from, like deployments are not three or four days, like the CrossFit games, you know, I mean, it's, it's a way of life and a lot of people are leading that, but it's, it's also really difficult. It's really hard. I mean, you talk about going back to buds. I know exactly why we needed to do this. I mean, it's just a grind. I'm like, what is the grind? What was the grind? I mean, you go on a deployment, say it's three months or six months or whatever your, your links were. I mean, it's, you're doing lots of work throughout the whole time. You're, you know, operating at night in the mountains of Afghanistan. I mean, these are very generic. Yeah. Lots of people have, have served in, in that capacity. I mean, what was the influence on you in terms of the way of life, how you should train, the, the mindset, the physicality, the, the team-based versus the individual? I mean, w- what part really came out of your, your time in the teams? Well, for on deployments, I think my biggest motivation was, uh, not letting the guy to my left and right down. And I think preparing and preparing physically, mentally, and being at the top of your game was all about your teammates. And I agreed 100% with the mission we were going, like we were going after some of the nastiest guys out there. And um, I really wanted to get them, of course, but I really wanted to come home with my teammates. I really wanted to take care of the guy to my left and right. And um, that, that was my motivation, not to let them down, because letting them down or letting myself down could end up in any of us being killed. That for me was very grounding. And it was really about the men and the guys and my teammates. And uh, we trusted each other with, uh, with our lives, basically. And so my motivation, because there was very, it, it, deployments are tough. And doing multiple combat deployments to those zones definitely wear on you. And, you know, I have friends who, who, who basically we entered that team where we're deploying there in 2003 and, and I got out in 2010 
And as of a year or two ago, they're still, as of now, I have some friends that are still there. And that's like 2000 and uh, that's 17 years of, of high level combat experience. Although the last few years, that, that type of mission has kind of uh, backed off a little. But there are some people who've done that for almost two decades. And it's really impressive that we have war, war fighters like that out there that, you know what, like that you'll never hear about. And, and someone asked me recently, someone said like, like, hey, who does he look up to, Jocko or Goggins? Or they had another name. And I'm like, it's none of those fucking guys. The guys I look up to, you'll never fucking know about. What were the most valuable lessons that you learned from, from guys that you served with? One big lesson, and I've tried conveying this recently to some others on my team in CrossFit, is uh, holding people to a standard that you would not hold yourself to is not okay. Meaning if I'm going to hold you to a standard or an expectation, I better hold myself to that same standard and same expectation. So I'm going to walk the talk. I'm going to walk the walk. I'm going to be true to what I say. And I think that's really important is you can tell people this is what you expect of them. But if you don't expect the same of yourself, it's it's kind of pointless. And it's kind of uh, there's a place where it's empty and shallow. And I think a lot of the guys that I really look up to, they really could do everything they expected of us. And, and experience was really important. Um, people's experience. I looked up to people who had done, who had much more experience than I did in the same stuff I was trying to excel at. And so the, the mentors I had, I knew they were good shooters. I knew they were physically fit and physically capable. I knew they were very professional. I knew they cared about the job. I knew they cared about pushing themselves and challenging challenging themselves. And because there's some SEALs that didn't walk the walk, you know, that, that didn't perform up to standard, but they were still SEALs. And I say standard being a very, you know, um, a level that I'm, I'm measuring off of my own, setting my own standard for someone. So I really, there was mentors that I had that just, um, if you could do it and you could live it and you were, if you were the one who was setting the example for everyone else that motivated me being, being an example and being a positive figure for others, younger operators like myself by actually performing meant a lot to me. So, you know, when we chatted with Jimmy, Jimmy Letchford, right. You know, one of his things is, is early on, he's like, look, you know, the, the CrossFit community really resembles that of of the values of the Marine Corps, the values of the Marine Corps, the values of special forces, the values of the SEALs. And to me, it kind of goes back to, to the importance of community. Like this is the avatar for community. Yep. You've got a, a small element, iron sharpens iron, which what you're getting at is you've got guys pushing each other through actions, not just, there's probably some words too, right? You know, but, but through actions, you're always trying to sharpen the spear. And what I've seen is, is that in the best CrossFit boxes that I've been on, you've got a little bit of that. You've got people encouraging and pushing, and it just, it feels like you were at home at CrossFit and CrossFit is a great place. It, it kind of can remind you of some of the times from, from the past. Is that? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's, it's not like by design, it's just kind of how you, you've, you've walked the walk as, as kind of the, the global community leader and it, it's, it's followed that. Yeah. So in the cross, the, the two, the comparison between the two, interestingly, is, um, you, you know, as a SEAL and you saw this as a SF guy, one of the things we were always doing is training. And regardless, so even if you're not on deployment, 
we are constantly in training. We are constantly trying to become better at what we do and practicing as a unit and practicing our teamwork. And I feel like the essence of that is captured in being in kind of that quote I said in the beginning in, in a CrossFit trainer. And as a CrossFit trainer or someone in this community or an athlete, you are constantly, if you're an athlete, you're constantly training. If you're a coach, you're constantly training and refining your skill set and your uh, your ability to teach and your ability to connect with people. And so for me, the two, uh, as an individual, at an individual level, the two were very similar in the fact that you're always pursuing a quest for more knowledge and betterment of your craft. And, and I feel like there's a high level of that in both communities, in, in, in the special force communities and the uh, CrossFit community, a lot of the best coaches and a lot of the best trainers, they're constantly working on their craft as we were constantly working on our craft to a different degree and to, to a multitude of fields when we weren't um, actually deployed. Now, uh, starting to blur this line between, you know, you're transitioning your active duty in the Navy and you're working at CrossFit. And when I see you at the games now, fast forward to now, and, and oh, by the way, you know, you went and became a BUDS instructor. So it sort of comes full circle again, right? Like you get to give back to the community what you've learned. Yeah. You know, you, you kind of have these elements of still being an, uh, like an instructor at BUDS, except it's the CrossFit games now. Yeah. Like, this, this push, this kind of mental push that you, you don't just write stuff on a whiteboard and go away. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it's intentional. Is it just you? It's, 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 uh, well, I tell people like, if you want to understand who I am, you really do have to look back at my past because the past that I speak so little of is so foundational for who I am. My entire twenties, I was a SEAL. I was in the military and I was, I was operating at, in, in this group at a very high level. And so for that decade of my life was, uh, really formative of who I am today. And then there was a period where there was four year, three, four years of overlap where I was doing both. I was working for CrossFit and working for uh, still active duty in the Navy. And obviously I took a lot of the strengths and skill sets I had from the teams and from the Navy and applied it to what I did in CrossFit. In, in CrossFit, in the training department and in outside of the games, I was able to bring I think organization and structure and kind of some discipline and some some structure that structure that's repeatable and um, scalable to to some of the programs where you know when Greg and Nicole and some of the people were first running this stuff um, in the early days it was very loose and it was very um, yeah loose <laughs> and uh, timelines didn't matter so much and I've always you know I was in a world where timelines are fucking essential. And even to this day, I'm like, if there's a time set to me, like I, I hit the timeline. And so it's really important for me, especially, and you see that expressed through the CrossFit Games. A lot of how the CrossFit Games are run and the discipline and the structure was influenced by uh, my time in the teams and the type of things we did. But it's not as visible as you would think. And uh, meaning like, you can see it and you can understand that it's well run, but that doesn't mean you're not assuming that it's, um, you're not necessarily seeing SEAL training in it. Meaning there's other things you can see where you're seeing special for like your, your guys' events. Like some of your stuff is more like it's tailored to that. It's like, hey, this is like a special forces like thing. I'm not trying to make the games that, but a lot of the things we've done and do and especially with organization are influenced by my time in that world. 
it's like secretly a seal like you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting because someone once critiqued what I do at the games, someone who was never in uh, special forces or, or any in the military at all and said, oh, Dave's just trying to put them through buds. And I was like, trust me, this is not fucking buds. <laughs> this is nothing like buds. <laughs> if, if I was trying to put them through buds, they, it would be a very different event. All right. So timeline stuff. Um, you know, I, I know that, you know, a lot of veterans who have struggled with their transition. I struggled with mine a little bit. Like what was the hardest part? I mean, you had kind of a long, a long runway. You seem to be very comfortable and at home at CrossFit now. Like what was the hard part about the, the veteran transition for you? Well, I like to tell people that um, I was very fortunate, meaning I, I know a lot of guys who get out and they have a daunting future in front of them because they don't have anything lined up or it's all unknowns or guys who retire. I had this fortunate uh, scenario line up where I was able to get out and just transition and I was full-time CrossFit. I was full-time CrossFit for three years while I was in. So, um, so my situation is really unique and I do respect that. And I only say that because I don't like to preach to guys because I've had guys say to me, hey, what advice do you have for me as someone who's getting out or someone who's retiring, and I could easily start preaching to them, and I can easily tell them what to do. But I have to, I have to tell them up front, like, hey, I might not be the best guy to talk to because my situation is so unique, and I had such a good um, transition, and I had such a good foundation already laid that getting out for me, there was no stress or there was no worry because I was working full time for CrossFit, so I, I was in a unique position. Interestingly, some of the challenges when I first started working for CrossFit that I think I was able to adapt to with the right mindset was just this notion of, uh, okay, being a SEAL definitely got my foot in the door. Being a SEAL definitely got me an audience to Greg Glassman and the opportunity to be involved with him and to work hard and to, to, to essentially create a role. But that absence of actually producing and delivering is tremendous. Meaning I've seen guys who came around and they were a seal and that got them in the door. But then because they were a seal, they thought they were just entitled. I took a different mindset. I was like, okay, it doesn't matter that I was a seal. It doesn't matter that I did. I was at the highest levels that I deployed multiple times to Afghanistan and Iraq. None that doesn't matter to any of these people. I need to start over. I need to start over as if I'm first going to buds or as if I'm first going to any other selection I've ever been to. And I need to work ground up. And that's how I that's how I viewed things. Okay, I have my foot in the door. Now I need to do something with it. Now I need to show value. And frankly, my value just isn't being a Navy SEAL. I've got to show that I can prove to have value within this new group, within this new community. And so I worked really hard to do that. I wasn't afraid to take out trash. So here I was, you know, nine, 10 years in the Navy, and I'm taking out trash. I'm setting up chairs. I was like a new guy in the CrossFit community. And I was super humble. So when I talk to people who are getting out, that's the type of advice I like to give them. When you get into a new community, don't be afraid to um, to be humble and start over and understand, you know, your past is very important. You should be proud of your past, but now you have to earn a future. And now you have to prove value to a new group or a new community with, with kind of their, in their world. And I have seen too many people who just, even especially like anybody in the military, not just SEALs, not just special forces, but any, even everybody who they get out and they feel so entitled and they feel like I've done this, I've done that. I don't need to, 
I'm a blessing to you. I have something. You should be impressed by what I've done, not, hey, let me impress you with what I can do. And for me, I think that is very important for my success with CrossFit is that I was able to just kind of start over. It also feels really good. Like, you know, that way of life work really hard, right? Yeah. I mean, just do that. And it's, and it's very rewarding. So I, I, I give similar kind of, I have similar, very similar advice, like work really hard. I also say, get a dog, right. And use the GI bill, but (laughs) all all right. So what I want to do is kind of switch over to like where we are in CrossFit, like where it came from in your brain, right? So what you started out doing CrossFit for was to prepare better for, for the mountains of Afghanistan on very difficult deployments, yes. right? And, and it worked, yep. right? And, and that's the same culture where I was. And CrossFit was hugely validated to me by special operations and the military kind of saying, hey, this works. Word of mouth. I mean, it spread like wildfire. Once you get everyone in the special forces qualification course doing CrossFit, they all go to all these teams everywhere and it spreads like wildfire. And that's what happened. And and it worked. So to me, what, you know, I see, this is kind of your Northern star and I don't want to put words in your mouth. I want, I want, I want to hear like what your take is, but this idea of, are we still training tier one operators and special forces guys? Are we kind of trying to get a lot more people more fit through CrossFit? Are they mutually exclusive? Is, is CrossFit a sport? Is it a training modality? Like h- how philosophically? That's a good question. And here's how I view it. It's whatever you want it to be. And that's really important because there's the CrossFit, the whole world can be doing CrossFit and everyone could have a different expression or a different goal with it. And you can't, we can't, we can't compromise that. Because there are absolutely people, they're war fighters who need this to be the best war fighters that they can possibly be. And at the other end of the spectrum, there's um, grandparents who need it just so they can pick up their child and just so they can uh, live a better daily life. And in the middle of that, there's people who just want to lose weight. There's people who want to run a 5K a little faster. There's people who want to go to the CrossFit Games. And so every one of those communities, every one of those Uh, Every individual's expression of it that might differ from everyone else's expression of it is very important. And and that's the beauty of CrossFit. Everyone can do it and everyone should do it. It's very challenging in terms of there's a commitment, there's a cost to do it. So it's not easy for everyone to get into it. Meaning the cost to do it, I'm not talking about money. I'm talking actually about commitment and stepping, you know, stepping up to the barbell, stepping up to the the timer and saying, okay, three, two, one, go. And so that's what I mean when I say there's a cost to do it. There is, you know, it's completely accessible to everybody, but there's still something you need to give. There's still, you need to commit to it. So at the end of the day, someone needs to stand in the gym and, or, or at the barbell and they have to be committed to at three, two, one, go, they're going to put the work in. So, so ultimately the uh, the individual is held accountable to to doing it but i think um everything it's it's for everyone every one of those things you talked about that's a version of it and every one of them is important so so i see you i see you going out and about to the whole global community you're in all sorts of boxes you 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 go there you get the t-shirt you take a picture with the people everybody's smiling it was a good sweat right I also see like this art that you have of keeping it really edgy and that, and and that is at the games. And 
to me, I'm, I'm sure I'm extremely biased just coming from a special operations background, but I, I, you know, you light up with the people, but there's something that reminds me of what I would expect a special forces cadre or a buds instructor to be like, there is a lot, like you light up. And I mean, to me, it's, it's, it's been you driving the edginess of CrossFit. And I mean, are those at odds though? I mean, I know there's new CEO and everyone loves Eric that I've ever talked to. I, I'm not looking to go down that route quite so much. Um, it just is like, like what's your, what's your role? What's your mandate? Is it to keep the edge on or is it to, to get people off the couch? Uh, my, my role is to be authentic, the authentic to who I am. And that's how I believe I, I'm going to be authentic to who I am. And 99% of the time it's smiling and it's going to gyms and it's all of that. But when it's the CrossFit Games, that's, that's my Bin Laden mission. That's, that's, I'm fucking, it's game time. So at the CrossFit Games or at those events, it's like, this is, this is the shit. And I'm there to do, I have a mission and I'm going to accomplish that mission at, at all costs, essentially. And so like, meaning, um, yeah, am I going to hurt people's feelings along the line? Absolutely. Am I going to push my team to a point that makes them uncomfortable? Absolutely. Because it's, it's the mission. And so, um, when you see me at events, specifically the CrossFit Games, that's the operator in me. That's like, this is, it's on me. It's representative of me. Everybody at the Games knows that I'm running the game. So like I have a lot on my shoulders and I want it to be the best it can possibly be. Outside of that, once the Games are over, uh, yeah, I'm a very different person. That being said, there are times when those two kind of blend um, out of the season, meaning I don't take a lot of shit. Meaning I also don't like, I'm not going to let someone say stuff about the games or about me that isn't uh, true. I'm not afraid to call people out or it's not even call people out. It's more corrected narrative. And interestingly, I sometimes have corrected narratives or, or told my side and people view it as being defensive or as being, and, and I'm, I'm not defensive. I'm just painting the other side of the picture. In what world can one person say something and accuse us of this? And if I decide to respond, that's defensive. No, it's just painting both sides of the uh, of the story. And any edginess that is perceived that I have is not by like I'm trying to force it. It's just by who I am. And if by being me is is sometimes edgy, it's it's real. And it's only real because look at my first chapter of my life and what I did. And like I had, I had to live in a, in an environment, I lived in an environment where I was constantly tested, where I was constantly evaluated, where I was constantly on the verge of being, you know, it, my hope that that phase of being in the military, 12 and a half years, we're always being judged. We're always being evaluated. We're always being tested. You're always being challenged. And so for me to, to then do that to others in a moment or in times when it makes sense is, is understandable. I told someone recently, you want to understand why I'm this way? Look at what I did and look at where I came from. But that being said, still, even with that, I still can separate from the two. And I'm still able to go to gyms and smile and be you know, part of the community and want the community to grow and really supportive of the community. Because I do understand that um, the community is not the military. And the community doesn't need, we don't need a military-like guy running it. But at the games, you need, I, I believe, I need to be in control of that, of that level of uh, detail to have the product that we have there. Okay, so, so the games. So really, what, what's been the evolution of what we're, what we're testing? And where, where are we now? 
And my next question after that is going to be like, how, how would some of these athletes do it at Bud's, do you think? So t- take them in any order you want. <laughs> so we're testing uh, CrossFit, which is function, cross, constantly varied functional movements executed at high intensity by our definition. And we're testing fitness, which is work capacity across broad time and modal domains. And really, interestingly enough, if you were to take those two statements, those two statements or definitions drive all the programming and everything I do at the games. I'm not trying to crush them. I'm not trying to beat them down, but some of these tests are very challenging. And some of these tests on top of each other in the same day feel like a lot. But when you look, when I look at a whole day that I'm programming, these guys actually have a lot of rest. They actually, um, oftentimes they have no more than four, four or five events, which for them is okay. For people like you and I, Three or four CrossFit workouts in a day is a lot. For, for these guys at this level, um, they're professional athletes who train for this all the time. It's not a lot. So the programming has not, I think, it hasn't changed much over the years from following the core principles. But as these guys have risen up in their capabilities and, and as they've redefined what the human um, body's capable of, some of the weights and some of the movements have had to grow with them because they are pushing the envelope and the boundaries of what uh, a homo sapien is capable of. And, and that's, what's really cool about CrossFit. And that's what I view where these guys are the fittest alive. Uh, their work capacity across broad time and modal domains is, is at the highest level now. So some people will say, you know, um, a decathlete's more fit or a, uh, or someone from the Titan games might be fitter than a CrossFit athlete. This all comes back to definition of churns. And this is really important. This is something I learned from Greg, and it's stuck with me throughout all these years. If you're not defining your churns and we're not speaking the same language, then, then it doesn't matter. We're, we're on different planes, meaning we def- it all comes down to how you define fitness. And we believe in our definition of fitness, work capacity across broad time and modal domains. If you define fitness as your ability to run 26.2 miles, in as fast as possible, which some people might, if that's how they define fitness, then guess what? At the CrossFit Games, we're not testing fitness. So you can have these conversations with someone, but if you're not, if you're not defining the term the same way, you're going to be in two different, two different worlds and you're not going to be in agreement. Interestingly, you see that in, in science and in politics and in a lot of other things where people are using the same word, but they define it differently. So they're not able to speak on the same level. Okay. So, so you talked about buds as being, it's, it's, we're in total agreement. It's, it's all mental. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you got to have the physical it's back to your, it's back to your sort of original quote we talked about, right. Is, you know, the, that being said, I'm saying all of this, assuming you continue to hone your craft and educate yourself in all things training. Well, then it's all mental, right? And so how do you compare not because they're the same, but how do you compare that physical, mental team, individual divide between buds where you got a a boat crew full of dudes rushing out into the water versus how much mental is, is the CrossFit games and and like, what's the comparison for you? First on that quote, the first half of that quote um, from earlier, that's largely concepts that was uh, taught to me by Greg. Like he really believed that about um, the best trainers are the the trainers who are able to connect the second half, the training part, that was definitely, that's definitely my addition to kind of the two thoughts uh, and refining your craft. But well, at this stage too, especially 
I don't think of uh, when I'm programming the games, like I'm really disconnected from, from what I did. I'm not trying to recreate that. I'm not trying to emulate that, but I, I do, there are things I think that, okay, I do want to mentally challenge them, but not at the expense of the pure test of fitness. So meaning I don't want to compromise that ultimately they should all be able to test on a fair field in fitness and not just like a buds beat down or not just um, an unfair advantage to, to, so, so the mental challenge of these workouts comes in the unknown, meaning, okay, I just found out this event 30 seconds before I have to do that. The mental challenge in it doesn't come in like, I'm going to make someone wet and sandy and then make them do it. Or the mental challenge doesn't come in, frankly, in, in keeping someone up all night. The mental challenge still, for me, has to preserve that we're testing fitness at the end of the day. And if I'm able to also mentally push them, that's good. But but it's it's a secondary piece. There's never, okay, this is a mental challenge. And that's primarily what it is, but it also tests fitness. No, it tests fitness, but if I'm able to mentally stimulate or push them or get them outside of their comfort zone, that's an added benefit. It just kind of baked in. Like it's it's your it's your way. Yeah. It can be in, in new implements that are kind of core to fitness that don't require a lot of technique. It can be in, in not knowing what the event. So last year's games, uh, we didn't announce a single event before the game started. And so that's one. And, and every other year prior to last year, we announced multiple events before the game started. Not all of them, but some of them. Last year, we didn't announce any. That right there was another way of mentally challenging them. Um, we announced every workout that last year right before they did it, anywhere from an hour to two hours before they did it. And so the, the workouts or the tests um, were still core CrossFit, but the big mental challenge throughout the week or weekend there was just knowing, okay, I'm not going to know anything until the day of. And so you go home at night and you're like, I have no idea what I'm doing tomorrow. That's mentally challenging. Yeah. Okay. Let's look out to the, to the future now, like 10, yep. 20 years from now. I mean, we are already at the games. You're pushing the limits of homo sapiens, like what people are capable of doing. What's, yep. what's the vision? I mean, do you have a new mandate or I, what's the vision on the training side? How, how do you want to keep inspiring people and pushing these elite athletes and, and doing all of that? Well, so in training, I'm not involved in training anymore. Um, so with the new ownership, I'm just focused on the games and the sport, which is cool because in the years past, I've done both. I'm going to miss training. Nicole Carroll's just running training exclusively with, with her team. So, um, but I'm still, you know, I still talk to Nicole on a regular basis and I'm still, I'll still be involved to a certain degree, but I'm singularly focused on the games and, and growing what Eric's calling the sport of it. So He's saying I'm in charge of the sport rather than saying I'm in charge of the games. So therefore, you know, in 20 years, I mean, geez, well, in 20 years, it should be bigger than the UFC for sure. I mean, it should be one of the a major sport in the world only because you take a look at something like the UFC and that is completely a spectator sport, meaning um, most a majority of the people who are doing who are watching the UFC are also not fighters. But in our sport, we can have a we can have a scenario where um, a majority of the people participating in our sport also are going to affiliates, also are involved in our community, also are active CrossFitters, and that's powerful. And that's something that uh, 
that gives us an edge on, on a majority of sports. Most sports, maybe basketball, but you took, take a look at the big four. People aren't playing on a, on a big scale, football, hockey, baseball, basketball. But in our sport, it can be a major sport where a majority of the people watching are also participants. So as our gross, uh, sport grows, the community also grows at the same time. The affiliates also grow. There's so many other communities and aspects of our community that grow with the growth of this sport. So, you know, there'll be the CrossFit Games and multiple other events and in 20 years, multiple other series and multiple other opportunities and military leagues. Like that's the type of thing we should have. Military championships. Think of how many PGA golf tournaments there are throughout the year and how many other feeder leagues there are same thing with uh you look at tennis or some of these other sports that are individual sports there's a lot of these sports that have multiple levels to them and we could easily get there the the thing i will say though is it's not scripted out and and why it's not scripted out is because you know even now making a five-year plan is good and cool but in a year or two we're going to need to change and adapt and move and and our sport being so new and innovative, it, it's nice to have the flexibility and the being able to be dynamic and make quick changes. That's another thing I, I think that I've learned from my time as a SEAL that I apply in this role is not being afraid to change and not being afraid to adapt and go in different directions. All right, I got, I got one last question for you. Okay. Basically, what's your advice to kind of the next generation. I mean, you're what, 41, 42, something like that. Yeah. You know, you went and saw the rock. <laughs> you thought, Hey, that looks like an awesome challenge. I think I'm going to go see if I can put myself to the test. You served your country for 12 years, fought in the mountains, fought, fought in the front lines of our generation's wars. You gave back enormously. You're, you're really humble about it. So like, I know what, the, I know what that lifestyle is like, and it doesn't cost you nothing. Right. Yeah. And you know, you got a lot of people and you don't have a lot of JFK moments right now. That's not what your country would do for you. That's what you can do for your country. There's not a lot of that going on these days, right? Yeah. And so with, with all of that, like, what's your, what's your advice to, to the next generation? Don't be afraid to be proud of the values that you have, even if the values that you have are contrary to some of the popular uh, or, or very vocal values being espoused by, by others. And so be true to what you believe in uh, to a fault, even if it's not the popular belief or position. And, and I, think, I think we're losing that. I think a lot of people want to just do what's popular or what, what is in, in mainstream media or in Hollywood, the, the cool thing to do. But understand sometimes the, um, the right thing or, or a belief that's counter to what mainstream is saying is sometimes a totally sound and okay opinion or belief. And being proud of what you believe in is okay. In religion, in politics, in science, in so many areas, it's okay to uh, think differently. And it's okay to, to stand by those principles that aren't popular. Well, I, I think I'll, I'll kind of dovetail with that, that I think that's a very important mindset to have. And I think it comes from your military background and from your from your previous uh, upraising. Yep. One of the things that you mentioned throughout, and I think it's so important for people today, and it ties into what you just said, the mental attitude is what really counts. Yeah, the physical counts. I get that. 
been there, done that. But the mental is what gets you through. The mental is what helps you make the changes. One of the, th the, the equations that I've had uh, espoused to for a number of years is that throughout our lives, we continually reinvent ourselves, which is a positive thing because you're establishing new challenges for yourself. And that's what you've done. That's where you come from. And I think one of the things that you mentioned when you talked about what advice would you give to veterans, take the strong good skills that you've learned in the military, not, not your entire military career, but take those skills and use them in a new arena, adapting them to that new arena. That's reinvention. And that's a positive reinvention. And I think you, you explained that very well. Thank you. Dave, you're the man. We, re we, really, we really appreciate your time today. And it was cool to get to know you a little better. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it, too. It was a lot of fun. All right, Dave's left the uh, champagne room here at HQ. It was uh, that was fun? I, I enjoyed rapping with him a little bit more about you know the parts of his past he was comfortable talking about and connecting the dots between how that is shaped not only what the CrossFit Games are but what CrossFit is. Well, I found it interesting that it's how he shaped or how it shaped his life. It has followed him all the way through. And I heard that in that first intro that you did. What he's talking about there, what I heard was team room stuff. It's all about knowing the guys that you're with, the gals, whoever it may be, the people that you're with, knowing them and still to a very personal level and still honing your craft, whatever that may be. Yeah, so my my goal in this really going in. I, I met Dave a couple times. I've been out to, to the ranch. I saw him at the games. You know, they put rucking in the games or Dave put rucking in the games last year. So I'd, I'd met him before the games and sent him the gear and stuff like that. He tested the gear and, you know, we've, we've stayed in touch. Anyway, this idea though, that like he doesn't put the seal thing front and center. I get it, right? He, he explained it very well. Why? What I wanted to do though was, cause there's like, Lots of us do CrossFit in some way, shape, or form. And lots of people in our community do lots and lots of CrossFit in some way, shape, or form. And it's impossible to remove his SEAL way of life. The fact that he's a SEAL, it's not something that ever goes away. And, and it's hugely influenced his time programming CrossFit and kind of being that the face of CrossFit for, for so long. And to me, I mean, it, it makes, it, it made perfect sense. It just made even more sense the more that he explained it, how exactly that, like connecting a couple dots. But a lot of people, when you don't know that, you don't know what someone's background is. Like you can see Dave during the CrossFit games and you're like, man, that dude, like, I don't know about him or whatever, right? I see these lines, these, these posts online and there's lots of opinions out there and you're, you're really not going to offend him. Like that's kind of like, yeah. it's one of those things, but like this edginess that we spoke of. And he's like, this is my bin Laden mission, right? You know, and he lives it, the ethos. Yeah. That's what it's all about. Once you've tasted it, you'll never change. You'll live that forever. Well, I saw now, the look. You'll modify. And, and he very clearly talked about that, adapting to a new arena. I mean, perfect. But he still got that same ethos that he learned so many years before that he used to get him through a period 
and now it's getting him through another period just in a slightly adapted or modified way. And it's so, so great. You know, when you just see someone and it's like team room stuff again, guys you serve with, and you just see their, their eyes. You can tell a lot through, through a man's or a person's eyes, right? Sure. And you see him at the games and it's like, you just, that's the same look that you have when you're on the teams doing team stuff. Yeah. And that, that's, that's what I saw last year in, in Madison. You know, I'm, I'm excited to see wh where it all goes. I think that Dave's done a, to me, a great job of representing his past and letting, letting his current work speak for itself. Absolutely. I, I like the way that he separates the two. I understand separating the two. And he's done a great job to do that and yet still brings that strength to his new position. So, so talk about it like this, right? Because if, if every single person that met you wanted to talk about your time in whatever unit, you know, you were, it, it's like, it's exhausting and you don't want to be around those people. Exactly. And like, I, the, 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 it's almost like a defense mechanism of how about we talk about something else besides that and judge me off of me. And, you know, I, I see there's just a lot of similarities because I hang out with you from time to time and it's kind of the same deal. Well, I guarantee you there's a whole bunch of people that have no idea what I've done in the past. There's people that I've been associated with for years in various areas that have no idea what my military background was like because I didn't want it to be. I wanted them to like me or to know me for me, not for what I had or what they perceived I had done because I'm not going to talk about it. I'll, I'll, I'll talk about a few things here and there, just like Dave did, but that isn't me. That was a part of me. It's, I'm a, it's a proud part of me, no question about it, but I don't want it to define me today. Okay. So how exhausting is this? Because I mean, you have 30 years of doing lots of new stuff, right? I mean, it's like, you paved a lot of trails and there's a lot of stuff that is very interesting, but what's the exhaustion level of how much you think about, I don't want to talk about, I mean, I know it just comes naturally to you on some level, but you know, I, I see that Dave walk in the same line, so to say, right. Yeah. Where it's, I, I just, I've rationalized why I'm not going to cross this, but how exhausting is it? Oh, it can be very exhausting. It can really get to you. And that's why so often, Guys like Dave basically turn it off and don't even talk about it at all. And I get that because it's just, it can become exhausting and confusing because if you're going to talk about it, you have to redact as you talk. You have to redact some things. So, because I agree with him, some of the greatest people I have ever known have been and continue to be war fighters. They're warriors. They're out there putting their lives on the line and have been for years and years and years. And I don't want to make any kind of mistake that would endanger them in any way. I don't want to talk about techniques, tactics, anything else that could endanger them or that could put them at risk. And of course, things have changed so much since I left. So the stuff I'm talking about, you know, broadswords and shit like that, you know, no, nobody's <laughs> going to pay any attention. <laughs> but but I, I get where he's coming from. And it's it can be really exhausting to try to talk to people and explain to them things 
that you really don't want to talk about. And that's why so often the the standard is just don't talk about it. It's also really advanced. I mean, when you start getting into what you're doing at, at that level of the military, it's just, I mean, you, you have to know who you're talking to, right? And so, you know, full disclosure for the listeners out there, I mean, I, I, I know Dave's stance on doesn't want to go into all the details of war stories and all this stuff. Like that's, I, I respect that respected it before I sent him and I said, I basically would love to have you on. And I would love to talk about your service and how it's impacted your life, how it translates to CrossFit. And, you know, basically take that as the vibe, like describing how your time on the SEAL teams changed you, impacted your life. I mean, our, our focus here is, is on the role of service, like why we should serve the benefits of service for yourself, for your nation. And, and that, that element of becoming and being and, and acting like a glorious professional and, and putting your, your nation above yourself, and that's really hard work. And so finding those people who have excelled at that type of work, and, and in Dave's case, completely reinvented himself. I mean, sure, there's a, there's a translation. I mean, it's kind of like, okay, I had some gear in Special Forces, and now we have gear at GORUCK. I mean, it's not the same thing. <laughs> right. But it's, it's like, okay, you know, I didn't completely ignore my past and start over. Well, it's the same thing with him. I mean, you, you train at a high level and now he's, he's leading, you know, the, the CrossFit games and has been co-director of training for, for most of his career. And so those are interesting conversations for us. And he continually talked about, you cannot understand me unless you understand this part of my life. And I, I get it. I really get it. And so yeah. final thoughts. Hell of a guy that's that's taken what he's what life has given him and has invented it, reinvented it in a new way to to help a new group of people and prepare themselves. And I I really liked the the end when he was talking about okay, you you've got the the in the athletes that are participating in the CrossFit games. You've also got grandparents on the other end of the spectrum of CrossFit and everyone in between. And that's an understanding that he's come through, I think comes from the military, understanding that there is an entire spectrum of people to deal with, not just one group of people, but an entire spectrum. And he's done that extremely well. I mean, to some extent, it's kind of like rucking, right? I mean, I get it's, it. Maybe we'll have, you know, CrossFit's CEO on, Eric. I'd, I'd love to chat with him as well about his, his vision for it because it's, it's really hard to execute on that, right? To appeal to the tier one operators or special forces guys and to try to get people off the couch. It's really just, it's just hard because, you know, what videos are you putting? What messages are you putting forward? All of this stuff. I mean, the bottom line is like, I hope, it, I hope they're really successful. Like, you, you know, people talk a lot about injuries at, at CrossFit and stuff like, yeah, you do. You do stuff that's weighs too much and you do it too fast and you get injured. Like that, that's a risk. Like, you know what else is a risk? Being weak. That's a risk. And so sitting on the couch eating potato chips. Yeah, that's, that's no way a to risk. Yeah, and that's no way to live either. So, you know, we need to get this mindset back in, this edginess. We need to get that back into to more of our more of our psyches. And I, I think Dave's a great ambassador for that. And so uh, no question. So it was it was awesome to chat with him. If you enjoyed this conversation, this chat. I hope you did. Tell a friend about us and we'll, uh, we'll catch you next time.